Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday the 28th of October and you're very welcome to Inside Politics from the Irish Times. This is Pat Leahy sitting in again this week for Hugh Linehan, whose holidays seem to go on and on and on. Later in the podcast, I'll get an update from our Brussels correspondent, Naomi O'Leary, about the situation with COVID-19 across the EU. Also later, what's eating the young greens? I apologise for the pun, which is the work of Declan Conlon, our producer. We'll talk to former Green Party councillor Lorna Bogue, who this week became the latest in a string of left-leaning young Greens to leave the party. But first I'm joined by Irish Times reporters Jack Horgan-Jones. Good morning, Mr. Pat Leahy. And Jennifer Bray. Good morning. And what we've asked each of them to do this morning is to explain from the perspective of, firstly, the government... And then from the opposition and uh, and activists who are unhappy at the government's position on this, what their uh, understanding of the current situation is and where it goes from here. Jennifer, you have been nominated to explain the government side. Proceed. Yes, I'll I'll, I'll do my best because it is a complicated issue. Um, to be to be fair. And I think if we're gonna if we're gonna get into it, maybe just a bit of background because it is important to know the context and the history um, of all of this. Um, but I'll keep it as brief as I can. Um, the Mother and Baby Homes Commission, which we've heard so much about, um, it's due to report very shortly. Uh, it was established originally under the two thousand and four Commission of Investigation Act. Uh, as we all know, and um, we've or for those who didn't know, um, that piece of legislation from two thousand and four says that the commission records must be kept under wrap for 30 years. Um, part of the reason of what for this, uh, I believe, was to allow it to operate uh, in a less complicated way, legally, uh, and perhaps a less costly way arising from that. Um, so this commission established a dedicated confidential committee. And the point of that was to allow former residents to give an account of their experience, but crucially, they would give that account in private. So it's probably worth saying here that although... Many of the accounts of life inside mother and baby homes were given in private. They will still be reflected in the final report, which I just mentioned there. So those stories of what happened, uh, even though they were given in private, they will be reflected uh, in the report. So the commission um, due to report by law on the 30th, which I believe is this Friday. Once that final report is given, the commission is effectively dissolved. All records then have to be have to be passed on to the minister. So this legally is where we start dealing with the issue of the records. Um, so obviously over the course of their five-year investigation, it was obviously a very complex investigation. A lot of records were gathered. Every record, every document, um, every piece of data, I think has been argued in the last few days is more than just a record. It's more than just a piece of data. Um, it's, a, it's a link to uh, a, a woman, a child, uh, an experience. Um, it's important for the survivors. It's important for their families. So the commission, in the course of its work, they compiled this database. Now, we've we've heard a bit about this over the last few days as well. This database has details of the mothers and the children who were resident, uh, I think, in 15 of the main mother and baby homes. 
And they put this database together with those records that they had gathered over the, over the five years. So the Minister for Children, Roger O'Gorman, had said that it was the Commission's belief, as they wound up their work, that the databases and the source records could actually really help uh, some people with information and tracing services. And we know this has been something that we haven't been great at as a country. We haven't really managed to pass proper legislation yet to allow people to fully access their own, um, even their own birth certs. So I think a point maybe, not that it was missed, but maybe that it was interesting to, to point out is that the commission was worried, according to the minister, that these records they have, that it contained sensitive personal information and that they effectively, at the end of this week, will be obliged to redact the names and any other identifying information about the residents of the homes from the archive uh, entirely, including the database, all of the records before transferring it over to the minister. So that's how we come to the recent legislation, the legislation that has caused all the controversy. Um, and this is, and it's a long name, it is the Commission of Investigation, Mother and Baby Homes and Certain Related Matters, Records and Another Matter Bill 2020. Um, so the aim of this bill, now this is where this is where we're coming to the crux of it, I think, was to make sure that the records of the commission that I met, that I mentioned that are being given over, that they were given without uh, redaction and that the database that they compiled was sent uh, to Tusla um, rather than not being sent to Tusla and not being accessible. Um, so just obviously important to, to know what's in this database. Why is it so important? It contains um, a ledger entry like in information. It's a woman's name. I believe, a date of birth, a uh, date she entered a home, a uh, date of birth of a baby, when she left the home, when the baby left the home. Um, so this legislation passed into law, uh, signed into law at the start of the week by the president um, and the commission will now be able to give Tusla a digital searchable version of the records uh, it has on that database. But I think the problem here is that that information, though it goes to Tusla, the database with all those details, um, it's still secret effectively it's still as confidential as it ever was um so while it could be viewed as being extremely welcome that these records have gone over in an unredacted format um the issue of access still remains so if the government wants to change that if they want to give greater access to that records they're going to need a new law they're going to need new legislation um and that's the next step. Um, that too, having said that, I think it would be a totally separate issue to the 30 um, year rule that we mentioned that came, that originated in 2004 Act. That would be need a separate piece of legislation to the best of my knowledge. Um, so the last thing I would say about this in terms of how it's played out, I mean, there was another part of the law um, which was amended in the Shannad, which meant that before the testimony of the witnesses goes to the National Archives, every witness will be given the opportunity to say whether they want their name redacted or not. So that was a key change in, in, in the process. This is the McDool Amendment. Indeed, yeah. So if they if they say, if the uh, witness says yes, um, that they uh, want their name redacted, their anonymity effectively will be secured. If they say no, um, it'll still be potentially revealed after 30 years, the 30-year rule that we heard about. Now, the the... The problem obviously is still remains that those um, survivors who want access to their own information still face hurdles. And, you know, there, there's two separate issues there. It's getting access to the database, firstly, and the second issue isn't around the 30 year rule. So that's the best summarization I can provide. I hope it's accurate. So to, to grossly oversimplify, but summarize even further, the state is saying that it must 
passed this legislation, which is now passed and signed into, signed into law by Michael D. Higgins on, uh, on Sunday night, albeit with a curious postscript from the president who had been asked by campaigners to refer the act under Article 26 which would, to the Supreme Court, which would test its constitutionality. Um, now, not having done so and not having even consulted the Council of State, uh, we can conclude that the president didn't believe there was any question whatsoever about its constitutionality. But he also put in this peculiar line into a statement uh, on Sunday night announcing that it had been signed into law, saying that it was open to any citizen to uh, to, to challenge the law. This, I suspect, maybe a well, piece of virtue signalling by the president. But anyway, let's not get dragged. Uh, uh, let's not get dragged into that. What you're saying, I think, Jen, is that the government says it needs to do what it has done to preserve the records. It wishes to provide access to the records to victims and survivors in the future, but it isn't quite sure how it's going to go about that. That's exactly it. it it's not quite sure. I mean, at the weekend, Roger O'Gorman uh, did an interview on News Talk and he said he believed that the government can actually move quite quickly, um, given that there's cross-party support for this. But let's look at the evidence. The evidence says otherwise. If we remember when Catherine's Pone was the Minister for Children, she tried to put into law or try to enact um, a piece of legislation that would give adopted people um, or otherwise access to their birth information, access to information about the start of their life. But and there are two balancing or two counterbalancing issues, and that's the, the right to privacy and that's the right to information. And I think what it came down to in the end is if you want one to trump the other, which neither of them can right now, we might need a referendum. That could be viewed as a totally separate issue, but it may come down to this. It may come down to your right to information versus somebody else's right to privacy. They couldn't resolve it last time. And there was a huge lobby um, um, to, to, I suppose, get that law in place and, and, and address that issue. And she, I know she tried. She did not succeed. Um, and this is where we'll, this is where we'll come, this is an issue we'll come up against in the this next couple of months. This is where we may, we may end up because, and, and, and this is elucidated in what is a pretty sober and calm piece by Colm Keena in this morning's paper outlining at least some of the circumstances in which these two competing rights uh, between people's right and desire to find out their origins and their true parentage and the rights of uh, privacy of the woman who perhaps in the past gave up the uh, the a baby for uh, for adoption. Ultimately, I suppose we will have to choose as a society between those two rights. It's very difficult to see how an accommodation could be reached between them. But let's park that there for the moment and uh, and go to Jack Horgan Jones. Uh, Jack, you've been looking at the arguments made by opponents of the bill and opponents of the general uh, of the government's general approach. Summarize it for us, please. So I, I think the the sin of the government here, such as it is, is is that they viewed this piece of legislation incorrectly. I think as largely a kind of a housekeeping bill 
that would come in and tidy up a bunch of the issues that Jen has identified. You know, it would make sure that Tusla would get a copy of the database. It would make sure that the, the records weren't destroyed. It would make sure that, um, and, and this was an amendment in fairness, but it would it would allow for, for redaction in certain circumstances. And it saw it as a, as a kind of limited and, and discreet uh, piece of legislation. The, the opposing point of view, and that outlined by uh, victims' rights groups and lawyers working with them, uh, and indeed groups of historians looking at this part of Irish history, is is one that is entirely different. And it one, it's one that, that views this bill as a continuation of the state's, uh, you know, approach to um, the, the experience of these women, uh, which compounds previous sins. And it does so in 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 various different ways some of them some of them quite clearly legal in that the argument goes that by i by kind of enumerating the ways in which somebody can access uh, their records uh, they're limiting them and and that people have wider rights under european data access laws the the, the gdpr than than the government is suggesting or that might be suggested by the governing legislation under which these commissions are set up, which is the 2004 Act. And other other aspects are, are more kind of rhetorical. Um, and, and the greatest example of, of the rhetorical sins that the government has committed around this piece of legislation is this idea of, of sealing records, which, as I understand it, there's no explicit reference to sealing records in the 2004 legislation, but the sealing of records for 30 years is something that Minister for Children Roderick O'Gorman said time and again in briefings uh, leading up to the publication of the legislation, and and was kind of invoked as as a key kind of organising principle um, for the approach to these records that they must be sealed. And 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 victims and 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 the groups representing them see this as a further curtailment or trammeling by the state uh, of access to records which affect them. Uh, both historically and also in a current sense for those who are trying to access uh, to trying to access information perhaps about, about birth parentage. So you have a, a, a clear divergence between the government who on the one hand kind of thought this would be fairly straightforward and, and, and victims rights groups on the other who say you not only are you seeking to constrain our, our rights here in a legal sense, you're also displaying um, a continuation of the the indifference and profound misunderstanding that has been exhibited by the state for decades in terms of understanding our plight and and the difficulties that were visited on us effectively by the state or by a combination of the church and state during the twentieth century. And this is what I think gives the argument its political potency, and why some people in the Green Party are so discommoded by it. Uh, in a way, because it's not just a disagreement on the details of legislation. It's also a sort of a cultural clash between a state apparatus whose history has been secretive, closed, disinclined to give out information about not just its own operations, but how its own operations have affected uh, people, particularly in those kind of corners of Irish life, which we've learned a lot about in the last 15, 20 years, and uh, and in many of which the state was at least uh, complicit and in many cases cooperated in the mistreatment uh, of, of people. 
albeit, and I, I think this is an important point, uh, albeit that these things took place in a cultural and social context that was completely different to uh, the Ireland in which we uh, in which we now live. Let me bring it back to the politics, though, uh, for for a moment, Jack. Is there a sense that this is this is an example, maybe, of the Green Party, and it is a Green Minister, Roderick O'Gorman, who's a first time, not just a first time minister, but a first time TD, um, coming up coming up against a state culture and dealing with. Uh, you know, the realities of administrative power um, that he's finding very uncomfortable. Yeah, I think so. I, I think I think that that goes in two directions. First of all, you're right. Any any new minister is 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 a new kind of uh, head of the department, but they they inherit they inherit a kind of broader uh, officialdom, which has a history with these topics, which often has a history with these with the, with the groups the advocacy groups that uh, are engaged on that topic and that's just within the department you know they also inherit a bunch of state agencies that also have a history so the the best example in this instance is Tusla um which is being given a copy of these records a lot of the victims rights groups find this objectionable because they have a history with Tusla where they feel that they that that agency has not been uh, fully cooperative in in aiding people find birth parentage. So you're a new minister, but you have to recognise that you know you're you're stepping into a, a quagmire which is populated by a whole kind of range of dramatis personae who have their own baggage. And and just because you're a new broom doesn't mean that you're going to easily be able to navigate that. And then then there's there's the other kind of political element to this, which is that the kind of the the callowness of 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 um of rookie ministers. Uh, like Roderick O'Gorman, and in this particular instance, the fact that that O'Gorman seems to have seen this as, a, as, as I said, a housekeeping piece of legislation, and didn't detect the political danger inherent in it, wasn't able to kind of see around that political p- corner um, and, and perhaps bring stakeholders into the process before publishing the legislation and uh, kind of adopt a more cooperative approach that might have seen this off at the pass and might not have seen this enormous political scandal or not, maybe not scandal but political controversy emerge from it and it is it is really big like i mean the during budget week as i understand it there was such a volume of inbound email traffic from constituency rep- representatives and from just ordinary voters effectively that that the Oroctus email servers slowed down to a crawl this was kind of almost an unprecedented um, level of public representations coming in. I, and, and, and I was talking to one Fianna Fáil minister yesterday who said the entirety of their morning had been taken up with correspondence on this matter. Now, some on the government benches uh, are looking for a kind of bogeyman in this and suggesting that these are organised campaigns, perhaps by Sinn Féin, perhaps by elements of the opposition. And, you know, there may be a grain of truth to that. But I think to, to, to see a bogeyman in this is to misdiagnose again the fact that they have really hit a wider nerve here. And even if there are elements organising uh, some email campaigns, the, the, the volume and the, the amount of people who are willing to attach their names to those campaigns are indicative of every politician's, every politician's worst fear, which is a controversy that has broken through to real people and is actually affecting their perception of the government now in real time. Well, as we've discussed, th- this seems to be an especial problem, not just for political reasons, but also kind of, I think, for cultural reasons for 
uh, for the Green Party and not just because one of its ministers is responsible for the legislation. So to discuss this a little further, uh, I, I want to bring in Lorna Bogue, who until recently was a Green Party councillor in Cork and has in recent days resigned from the party. Uh, hi, Lorna. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We'll come to the broader reasons for your resignation uh, shortly. But just on the topic of the, the the Mother and Baby Commission records, was that the trigger for your resignation from the party? And uh, and if if so, give us the reasoning behind it. Yeah, um, I, I'm more than happy to um, discuss that. So I, I do know that there is this narrative out there that um, this is the straw that has broken the camel's back. Um, but it's not quite a straw for me. Um, and I suppose it goes back to that cultural point that you were making as well, because it's not just a Green Party culture, but I suppose I'm 28 um, and I have participated in two massive um, societal campaigns, which is marriage equality and the repeal referendum. And I suppose when it comes to issues like these, um, the general public um, and myself included in that, there's just things that we won't tolerate anymore. Um, and I think that people want to have a reckoning as a state with the mistakes and errors that the state has made in the past. So I suppose with regards to my resignation and how it links in with this particular issue, what I actually think is this issue for me felt completely different in character um, to any other disagreement that I have had with the Green Party. Um, so I suppose I've been very vocal about my opposition on policy matters. Um, I have been working within the party um, to try and resolve some of those political and ideological differences that have been exposed between myself and the party. Um, but I suppose in this instance, it's for me more about governance than politics and ideology. Um, this is a governance question for me and whether the structures of the Green Party supported our people enough um, in actually providing them with the tools to, um, to, to handle this issue with the seriousness that I feel that it deserves. What exactly do you think the government should have done or the Green Minister Roderick O'Gorman should have done in this instance? Well, you see, it's a, it's a very, it's a very complex issue. Um, and I, I know that's a truism, but it, it is. Um, so if we look, if we look at the state itself and the Irish state itself and how you go about entering into government or being part of the governance of that state, we have a civil service that has been there since the foundation of the state. We have two major political parties of government who have been in, in government since the foundation of the state. Um, and interlinked with that as well, we of course have the Attorney General. So all of these moving parts, you know, there, there's a nuanced point of view of them, which I have through my own um, studies. I have a master's in economic analysis um, and I was particularly focused on institutions and how they tend to interact with each other. So when you're going into government or you're entering into politics, 
you have to realise that there's no easy narratives of good people and bad people. There's people who have various different incentives and incentive structures. And the incentives here have all come together in this perfect storm almost um, that has resulted in this particular issue being mishandled. Um, And I'm not angry at anyone about it um, and I'm not scoring political points here um, but I don't think that people really took into account just how serious this issue was going to be and the way that society has changed um, to to such a point that almost all of society is behind the survivors on this one, you know, Um, and that's something that is a massive cultural change um, that perhaps politics and the civil service and the various institutions of state haven't been nimble or responsive enough to actually take account of. Um, So I, I suppose with regards to this specific issue, um, what I think could have happened, and I'm aware that I'm speaking from the outside now, um, but I, I think that there could have been more of a collaborative approach um, in terms of how do we how do we bring the opposition in on this one, recognising the seriousness of this issue. Um, I think there were structural issues within the upper echelons of the Green Party insofar as on paper, you know, or um, Minister O'Gorman, I I respect his legal expertise. Um, I respect his expertise um, and I think he should have been supported perhaps in challenging what the Attorney General was saying to him. I think he could have been supported more in terms of what the civil service was saying to him as well because some of our staff members were previously working for Catherine Zappone in that same department. Um, So for this to have landed in the way that it did um, on on our ministers and TDs, um, I think is just a, a, a mishandling of it. Do you think it was bad, bad political management at the top? It, it's it's not even political management because again, I I don't think that this even necessarily is a political issue because, you know, I, I suppose I I have fair I have fair warning here for opposition as well on this, um, which is that. If if everything had worked differently, so if we were in opposition right now, I know for a fact that the Green Party would be saying exactly the same things as what the opposition are currently saying, right? But isn't there a broader point there is that, you know, the Green Party knew that compromises, that difficult decisions, that choices between unpalatable alternatives would be the stuff of uh, of of government. And it made the decision, though, uh, I, I mean, I know you were a vocal opponent of it, but the party made its democratic decision to uh, to enter government in the full knowledge that it would have to deal with these sort of difficulties in order to achieve its uh, its bigger policy goals. Now, whatever you may uh, think of that uh, that decision. It was achieved democratically and in a way then kind of confirmed when the leadership uh, voted to back Eamon Ryan. I mean, what do you think of that? That Essentially, I suppose what I'm saying, not to sound too brutal about it, but is you kind of lost the argument within the party democratically and now you're kind of sulking off. 
Oh, yeah. Well, I, I, I totally acknowledge that. Um, you know, like I, I totally accept um, that people would um, would think that, um, you know, like that's 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 something that I'm I'm happy to accept um, in the position that um, I well, I'm in now, um, but in the position that I have occupied since the party went into government. Um, I, I suppose the, the answer, again, sort of lies in how people behave in groups and people's behaviour and having studied behavioural economics myself, people in general tend to downplay um, the negative aspects of things that they're entering into in general. That's, that's, that's how people are. Um, and as a politician, you, you have to recognise that um, and you have to understand that and you have to understand that governance and politics are various shades of grey constantly and very often the choices that you have to make are not between an objectively very good thing and an objectively very bad thing. That's simplistic. That would um, make it easy. <laughs> well, it, it would. Um, it certainly would. Um, it's between often what is the least harmful thing to do or how do I ameliorate for the harms that are happening here? And, you know, I, I think on this one, Minister O'Gorman is coming from the position of saying, well, how do I ameliorate for this runaway train that has already been set in motion over decades um, of the existence of the state? And he attempted to intervene. Um, and that, unfortunately, um, has has resulted in a lot of... Um, trauma and hurt um, for people. And in some sense, you have to be able to sort of see around corners um, and you have to sit down and think very, very carefully about governance and how exactly you are going to handle these things. Because entering into government in the Irish state or in any state, um, there's always these really dark things underneath the surface. And you're always going to have cohorts of people who have been, um, you know, hurt or oppressed by previous actions that you would have had nothing to do with um, and then suddenly you're in the hot seat. But that's why I think that people need to be supported um, in their positions. And I suppose looking at the organisation and whether that support was provided, um, I think on this occasion it wasn't. Um, and I suppose if you wanted to link things back then to previous things that have happened, I mean, similar processes have occurred with the climate bill um, in particular. Um, and people have to be a bit more assertive um, in their positions. Um, and given that many of our TDs and ministers um, are in fact first time TDs as well, um, of course, they required support um, in those positions. And, you know, that that support hasn't hasn't really been there. Um, and when I'm criticising the party and when I was criticising the party from within the party and working with the party from within to try and get things changed, it wasn't from a position of, well, I'm always right and am I fantastic and all of this kind of stuff. It's from the position that, you know, we are in a very difficult place um, and being the smaller party um, in in this state um, and in this particular political context that we find ourselves in requires almost that you have to be better um, than, than your, your partners. Do you think that Green Party ministers and TDs have been difficult enough? Um, well, I think you know what my answer to that would be. We should give it to us um, anyway. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a difficult one to actually answer because, um, you know, I suppose 
previous um, small coalition partners have had very different experiences based on their ideology. So, I mean, one of the most effective um, partners in government would have been the Progressive Democrats. Now, ideologically, of course, I am totally opposed to them um, and not, not particularly happy about the stuff that they did. But in some sense, number one, they were a lot more aggressive. Um, but number two, ideologically, they were pushing an open door. Um, and perhaps even, you know, well, this is just one of my own sort of political thoughts. Um, but I mean, you know, if you were, if you were to compare Fine Gael now with the ideology of the Progressive Democrats, what you could say as well is the Progressive Democrats pushed the Overton window so far towards their own um, particular brand um, of um, politics that, in fact, Fine Gael are very similar now to what Progressive Democrat TDs would have been like um, back in the day. Um, but that's that's just my own kind of thoughts on it. That's also, also a, whole, a, whole, a whole other discussion uh, we get into. But look, finally, um, can I ask you, 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 as we noted at the start, um, there's been uh, there's been a succession of resignations, many of them amongst younger members uh, from the Greens last weekend, the head of the Young Greens, the head of the Greens uh, uh, Gay and Lesbian Group um, resigned. They said they felt bullied and harassed uh, in, in, in the party. Do you think that government, power, office has changed the culture of the Green Party? I, I don't I don't think that that's necessarily what the issue is. I think that governance has taken a lot of resources um, from away from the development of the party. So I, I suppose if you look at the Green Party um, and the Green Party that I joined, um, that was a very small organisation where people were relatively homogenous in terms of their ideology and their, you know, their political thought. Um, and over time, of course, there's been an explosion of members um, and those members have various different um, approaches to politics. Um, as you get closer to government, um, that changes um, the type of member who is more likely to engage. Um, so what I actually think, um, and I, I know it's not a very, you know, juicy answer, um, but it's to do with like the actual structures of the organisation itself. Um, and not enough effort has been put into those structures. So in terms of reporting things like you know, bullying um, or harassment or anything like that, we don't really actually have a reporting structure for that. Um, and Have you experienced those things in relation to your political views? Um, well, yes, I, I have, um, you know, and like it's, it's difficult to talk about um, and I don't necessarily want to, you know, harp on back to that one again because I've been, I've been public about the issues that I've experienced. And, you know, you, you see you see other people um, getting this exact same kind of behaviour as well. But it's not it's not something that is unique um, to the Green Party. Um, and again, you know, I know it's not a very satisfying answer to go back to, well, this is a systemic issue that exists um, everywhere um, in Irish society and also in politics. And there's many, many um, female politicians who have been outspoken and then over time you just get bet down and you're tired of just being told 
that you're making it up or we're all very nice people. We couldn't possibly have done something like that, um, you know, and you're getting gaslit. And there's 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 no point in even going back down that particular route for me anyway, because um, I've left um, and I wouldn't I wouldn't. Well, I've, I wouldn't say that it was the primary reason. It's one of the underlying things that every woman in positions of power or any woman who goes near power has to, um, has to, has to go through. Um, so yeah, I mean, like it's just, it's just being constantly dismissed all the time is of course very frustrating. Um, and that's, 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 that's the issue that your motives are questioned constantly. Um, and there's only so much of that you can put up with, um, before you can just say to yourself, well, look, the structures aren't here to deal with this and it's not being taken seriously and there isn't, um, you know, the wide ranging reforms that need to happen um, in order to deal with this. And it's it's the same in any walk of life, I think. Well, we're grateful for you joining us uh, today to discuss uh, these and, and, and wider matters. Lorna, briefly, what's the future for you politically now? You'll, you'll stay on the local authority um, well, this, I mean, my, my resignation, um, wasn't very, very premeditated. So, um, I know my campaign manager, Angus O'Cron was on news talk yesterday and saying that we were, um, I, I was constantly saying to him that I was having difficulty retaining my membership. Um, I think every week I must have said to somebody that's it. Like, I can't do this anymore. I'm out. Um, because the, the, the ideological differences had gotten so wide ranging. Um, but I, I actually was intending, um, on staying, um, and continuing to fight because people were always asking me to stay and that there are certain people in the party who did find my contribution valuable. Um, so I was able to justify it. Um, but, um, this, this mother and baby homes issue, for me is just so completely different um, in character that that's why I just found myself just saying, do you know what? Actually, I can't, I can't anymore. Um, just I'm, I'm not, I'm not able to stand over this one because um, it's to do with competency rather than, you know, like um, ideological difference because I could debate all day um, about that. That's no problem. Um, so with regards to what, what happens in the future, um, I'm I'm actually quite unsure because um, going back to that point that I was making about, um, you know, if the Green Party were in opposition right now on this issue, we'd be saying exactly the same things as the rest of the opposition is saying. And that that for me is the fundamental issue is that, you know, for everything that people are saying now and I don't I don't doubt people's good intentions I don't doubt their motivations um, I'm not I'm not interested in that particular um smear campaign that's happening right now that somehow Sinn Féin are behind the the public outrage they're not um but I don't know what um political organization at the moment is actually thinking about um the state um or governance um in the way that will actually make them effective. Um, that's my issue right now. Okay, well, look, we, we look forward to discussing those issues, broader issues with you uh, again sometime before the moment. Um, we'll, we'll leave it there, Lorna, and thanks again for joining us. Well, thank you. Jennifer, difficult 
times for the Green Party uh, in government. Did What's your read on it? Do you, do you notice any wider... I mean, I suppose it's probably not the greatest political surprise in the world that Lorna should leave, given her opposition to going into government in, uh, in, in the first place, notwithstanding the reasons that she's uh, outlined there. But do you, do you think her views are shared broadly throughout the party? I do. Yeah, I think it was, she made a number of very interesting points there. And it struck me that actually a lot of the problems she referenced were in existence before the party actually went in uh, to government, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. This issue of different competing factions in the party. Like We know there are some people, a lot of people in the Green Party who've been there for a very long time, would have a more traditional approach perhaps. And then there were new members. She talked about the explosion of members in the party. Maybe those new members are more progressive. So there was a pull in the party in different directions from a very early stage. And, and we talked about this in previous podcasts, gone. And another interesting point, which I think she made, was that if the Green Party were in opposition now, they would be saying all the same things as what the opposition are saying about the mother and baby homes. And that's the crux of it, really, is that the Green Party are having to shoulder and take on all the unpalatable realities of being in the government and it's difficult and maybe they are looking at the opposition and saying that's where we naturally belong but it's it's kind of too late for that um so i think what we'll see we'll see more resignations we've seen a lot I, the true nature the true number only known to the green party but that's the crux of the issue for me it's the competing factions beforehand the explosion of members pulling in different directions going into government and then the absolutely unpalatable reality of not being able to perhaps say what you really think? Jack, they've made their bed now. They have to lie in it. They have made their bed. Um, they have also shown uh, an institutional incapacity to, to kind of deal with issues emerging from the uh, the, the just transi- transition wing, for want of a better a better word. Um, whether that's, uh, you know, out of a lack of interest or a lack of capacity or a lack of resource or a lack of time, um, kind of doesn't really matter because it's clear that they have a problem uh, now uh, that they haven't been able to manage and that that is now resulting in significant numbers and also significant figures within the party and within that, within that just transition group leaving the party. So I think that that's something that if you were a kind of middle of the road green, even if you didn't agree with, with the just transition transition wing, um, you'd want to see the, the, the party hierarchy and, and the central party addressing. Uh, there's another interesting point as well. I think it will be very curious to see what the future brings for this cohort of people who have left the Green Party. She was quite coy on that, Lorna Bogue. She wouldn't be drawn on it. But you do now have people like Lorna Bogue and people like Saoirse McHugh and a whole host of other people who are strong activists without a, a natural political home. So whether they coalesce together, whether they go to other parties, where that kind of uh, wedge goes and, and, and what the political uh, fallout or indeed dividend for an existing political party of that will be, I think, is another interesting thing to watch. Guys, we we'll leave it there. Thanks for your time this morning. Before we move on, uh, I want to remind you again about an online event taking place tomorrow at 7pm. Hugh, assuming he's back from his holidays, will be talking to our Washington correspondent Suzanne Lynch and the New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd about the US presidential election, which of course takes place next Tuesday. Tickets are on sale now with a special rate for Irish Times subscribers. If you want to find out more, follow the link in the description of this episode. Okay, so we want to turn uh, briefly now to the situation with COVID-19. Not so much um, in in our own country, uh, but across Europe, where uh, it seems that a second wave is really taking hold. We hear all sorts of 
very troubling and worrying stories uh, from a number of European countries about hospitals being under threat, being overwhelmed, actually being overwhelmed in some instances. So to give us an overview of the situation across the continent, or at least those uh, uh, those bits of it that aren't a million miles from her, is our Brussels correspondent, Naomi O'Leary. Naomi, hi. Hi, Pat. What's the situation where you are in Belgium? That's one of the worst uh, affected countries. Belgium has been hit really, really hard by COVID-19 since the beginning. So even before the current resurgence, it had one of the highest death rates in the world. So about one in every 1,000 people in Belgium has died of the coronavirus already. Um, And now what we've seen is that um, hospitals, even though Belgium is a country which has a relatively high proportion of intensive care beds for the population, hospitals can't cope um, they've, the health minister has issued a warning that there won't be any intensive care beds left um, within a fortnight. Um, they'll just be completely full. Um, and also we've seen, you know, hospital management just making appeals um, for more action to be taken because, and you know, they're just overwhelmed. Um, in Vervier, a field host- hospital has been set up in a car park of a, of a hospital to try and Uh, give additional beds to try and manage the number of people coming in. And one of the problems is that um, to a greater extent than ever before, before, like it wasn't like this in the spring, this is a new phenomenon, but so many of the staff are sick. So, so many uh, doctors and nurses and hospital staff are themselves sick with COVID-19 that they're dealing with an enormous number of patients, um, absolutely maxed out capacity, but without enough staff to care for them. And this is a situation that we're seeing in a number of hotspots in Europe. Uh, So um, Belgium asked if they could send, they suggested that perhaps they could send some of their um, intensive care patients to the Netherlands um, over the border to get care. But the Netherlands rebuffed that idea because they themselves don't have any uh, space and they already started airlifting intensive care patients to to Germany last week. Um, So the situation in the Netherlands is is similar enough. Um, the uh, a senior executive of a major hospitals group in The Hague um, gave an interview to local media um, a couple of days ago in which she said that ambulances are driving around in circles in The Hague because they're not able to offload patients because they'll head for one hospital and be told there's no room, sent to another hospital, which in turn will say there's no room and they just go around and unable to drop off patients. Um, and also... It's not just The Hague. This is, you know, this sounds like Bergamo. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely worse than the spring. Um, This is at an earlier stage and it's many, many more places than than in the spring are are really uh, seriously affected. Um, So really there's like the hotspots in the Netherlands, for example, are everywhere from Rotterdam to Dordrecht. Um, The Dordrecht Hospital closed its doors to coronavirus patients, said they couldn't take any more. Um, and, um, you know, their uh, chief, their chairman issued a statement in which he said, you know, the hospital is cracking and the whole system is cracking. Um, and this is happening in a number of European countries at once. Uh, so you can see that field hospitals are being built in uh, Asturias in Spain. I was just kind of doing a roundup this morning. In the Czech Republic, the army has built a 500 bed field hospital in the middle of Prague. And in Poland, they're converting the national stadium um, into a field hospital for 500 patients and also make, uh, 
looking for locations to set up field hospitals in each Polish region. Um, so Czech Republic and Prague would be countries that weren't that badly hit the first time around. They escaped the worst of it. Um, but obviously, you know, um, Belgium, Spain, those are places that were already hit really badly. So it's hitting both countries that were, uh, you know, suffered a lot the first time around and also ones for whom this is new. And how are the authorities responding to this? Are they all returning to lockdowns? Well, the word lockdown means very different things in different places. Um in the Irish sense, I suppose the most similar country is Wales, except that Wales has also closed secondary schools, which I understand hasn't happened in Ireland. Um, <clears throat> across Europe, what you see is that regionally, um, a number of places places have, have gone for that same approach. If you, if you take lockdown to mean telling citizens not to leave their home except for essential reasons, there is that kind of lockdown in a number of local places. There's two uh, districts of Germany that have done that. Um, places in Spain have been in and out of that kind of lockdown basically all throughout the summer. But at a national level, governments have been reluctant to do that um, because there's, I suppose, concern about e- economic impact. There's also, um, they're aware of kind of public resistance to that kind of measure as well. Um, unfortunately, uh, what they're discovering is that if you let the virus rampant, you're going to get the economic damage anyway. So it's not really a choice between one or another. And what we've had is that um, just last night, uh, Charles Michel, who's the president of the European Council, so basically the guy who's been chairing the meetings of all the European leaders where they've tried to come up with common strategies against COVID-19, basically admitting that that had failed. They'd taken the wrong approach um, and they're going to have to think again um, because the strategy of trying to reopen and, you know, keep things under wrapped with test and trace hasn't worked. So um, today we're expecting the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, to come out and give a press conference where she's going to give some ideas about how to change approach. Um, Probably talking a lot about vaccine, but that's mostly because that's what the European Commission has any power over. They don't really have much power to do anything else. So we're looking at a grim few weeks ahead. I've seen some projections for deaths in November, which are, uh, you know, scarifying. Yeah, uh, some of the predictions are, you know, hundreds of thousands of deaths in in Europe um, over the winter. Um, You know, it's important to note that all of this about the hospitals being overwhelmed was predicted, which is part of the reason why doctors and hospital managements are speaking out and making statements and openly, you know, tweeting and stuff about how angry they are because this was all predicted. Um, And, you know, for whatever reason, people started to think that once you had infections and you didn't see people going into hospital at first, then maybe there was something different about this time. But really all it is is a lag. You know, first of all, the infections go up, then the hospitalizations and then the deaths. Is it the fault of governments for failing to put into preparations uh, in place or for opening up too quickly uh, after earlier lockdowns? Or is it just that people have reached the end of their tolerance of, uh, of restrictions and, and that their behaviour changed and, uh, and that's what allowed the virus to spread? I think it's really important to think about this clearly Lockdowns and restrictions like that are a reflection of failure. That is a policy when the government has failed to control the virus. 
that hasn't happened everywhere in the world. So we're a little bit, um, we suffer from a little bit of tunnel vision, I think in Ireland and many countries in Europe, where we look to ourselves or we look to the countries most close to us. Uh, but all of Europe is failing and failing in similar ways to different degrees. Um, we need to look at countries in Asia uh, to look at the successful routes to containing the virus. There's been a, a couple of sort of um, logical faults that have taken hold in among politicians in Europe. One is to associate Asian policies with China. China is obviously an authoritarian uh, state, but we don't need to look at China for successful policies. We can look at the democracies of Taiwan or Australia or, you know, Hong Kong. There's sort of stereotypes about Asian people being compliant that have just been allowed to kind of circulate as conventional wisdom. When, you know, Hong Kong it has been, you know, racked by pro-democracy protests for months leading up to the pandemic. It's kind of ridiculous to suggest that this is a compliant society and that's what makes them different or makes them able to contain the, the coronavirus. Essentially, in the initial outbreak, certain things were unthinkable, like restricting travel. And European governments didn't act quickly enough to stop COVID-19 being seeded into tons of countries. And then other things were unthinkable, like um, compulsory um, quarantine for people who've been exposed to the virus. Um, that was unthinkable. Uh, and instead, there was... Um, there was a, there's been this emphasis on the individual, that it's up to each individual to take personal responsibility, which is obviously the important part. But in, on an individual level, individuals do not have the power to put in place an effective testing and tracing system. And you're always going to have individuals who can't follow the rules or who won't follow the rules. So, for example, telling people who are invulnerable to isolate uh, doesn't take into account that some grandmothers look after their look after children. Some, some children are brought up by grandparents. I was talking to a, a, an Irish doctor who's working as um, a public health official in Australia, basically trying to, he's in charge of the COVID-19 controlment policy in a part of Australia. And he estimates that it's about 30% of the population who are vulnerable, like seriously vulnerable to this disease. Um, and apart from that, like we're also seeing that um, something in around 10% of people who get it, irrespective of age, have really serious sort of medium, possibly long-term health effects from it. And he was saying, you know, it's just a crazy idea to sort of abandon that 30% of people um, and say, well, you guys just stay in your house and lock yourselves up and everyone else will keep going. Um, you know, in Australia, older people are going out, eating in restaurants, continuing normal lives. Anyone who's got, I don't know, cystic fibrosis or any number of uh, conditions that makes them more vulnerable is able to live a normal life. But in Europe, governments have decided that they don't need to kind of take policy decisions for those people. And instead, it's on them to protect themselves. And the virus is just kind of has been let to roam. I mean, it's it's been the policy to just let it spread and keep it under what they consider to be a manageable level that won't overwhelm hospitals. But what we've seen is this is an, such an infectious virus. They haven't been successful in even doing that. Doesn't look like anything is manageable at the mo at the moment. Naomi, um, we leave it there. Thanks a million for your time. No bother. Thanks a million, Pat. And that's all we've time for today. My thanks to producer Declan Conlon, JJ Vernon on sound, to all our guests this morning and to you for listening. Stay tuned. We'll be back soon.